0: Sit, your ass, Sit down. your ass down. Down. Sit your ass, Sit your down. ass. down. Down. Let's talk about, Let's the, talk suffering. about the suffering. It's time, it's time to stop the pain. Sit your ass Sit your Sit your down. Business. Down. Your ass, your, down, your ass down, down, and strap it. This, is gonna, this hurt. is gonna hurt. This is gonna, this hurt. Hurt. gonna hurt. Let's talk about the suffering. suffering. It's time to start, it's the pain. start the pain. This is gonna this hurt. Is gonna It's time time for The Suffering suffering Podcast. Podcast. When our lives become an act for stage play, it's difficult to know how we will be received. We put ourselves out there for the world to see, hoping that we can provoke thought, elicit emotion, and inspire. The tale we tell reveals a vulnerability that we must mentally prepare ourselves to be put on public display, giving those who normally would not have the right to comment on anybody's personal life the ability to do so. Whether it be a viewer, a listener, or a reader, the general public now has the access to perform an autopsy on our personalities. I'm Kevin Donaldson here with Mike Felace, and on this episode of The Suffering Podcast, we welcome back our very good friend, Charlie Cifarelli, to discuss the suffering of 14th and 2nd. Charlie gives us a glimpse into his own personal life that may just help you Work out some of your own problems. Charlie, welcome back to the Suffering Podcast. I'm
1: glad to be here with you guys.
0: I want to point out that this is
1: where it all began for Charlie. Yeah. It really did. We, I got goosebumps. Yes. We,
2: we were probably one of your first podcasts, right? Yes, you were. And now, now you're like a podcast superstar.
1: But, now, now I'm busy. But <laughs> it's great
0: to see how your story, which I always thought was a really great story, progress. And you, you really, it's not that you changed the story. You just gelled it better together to get the message out.
1: It was a lot, and uh, I got it uh, a little smoother.
0: It, it, I'm sure it was just some. I know you're you're a transactional guy. I remember that from speaking to you often. And you prepare like you go into this these podcasts like you're a fighter training for a prize fight. Does it ever uh, does it ever get too much where you just got to sit down and decompress a little bit?
1: I don't do that. You know, I really think about the listener and I think about their gift of giving me their time to listen to me, and I owe it to them.
0: I said something to you and I don't know if you remember it. You went on some show and I said, Charlie, you got to understand something. I think it was our show. You got to understand something. However many downloads you have, people gave one hour per download of their time to listen to your story and it's humbling.
1: It is very humbling.
0: Before we go any further, I want to thank Toyota of Hackensack. Toyota of Hackensack has always been very good for us. Uh, If you're looking for a car, let them find you a car. Go to Hackensack.com and they're going to take care of you. They're going to treat you like family. So Head on over there today,
2: Charlie. I, I just got to tell you, Kevin did a beautiful intro to to this episode today. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was—I heard it forty-two uh. times because you kept screwing it up, but it really is a nice intro. All right, so I'm just I'm, had to get that out. There. <laughs> I Drew, I'm going
0: to make a humble request here. I want you to release the audio of all the mess-ups and me telling Mike to go f himself and get out of here. There's one time Char- right in the middle of it, I was getting it and you called me and say you were downstairs. I was like, "Mike, go get Charlie." It was you calling me to tell me you were I, some I, time I out. <laughs> Before we go any further, let's get into this week's social media question. And this social media question comes from Steven. This one was tailor made for you, Charlie. It's where do you get your thought provoking comments from? We're going to hand this one off to you.
1: You know, it comes from two places. Uh, it comes from those that are teaching me. I have mentors, I got coaches, uh, and it's not even in a formal sense of it. It's that um, the universe has given me a lot of really good people, and they ask a lot of great questions that make me think.
0: Now, your coaches, are they what everybody would think is a normal coach, or are they just everyday people?
1: They're everyday people. What experience in life. Yeah.
0: That's the, best, that's the best tool ever. That's the best education ever is the, the ass-kicking that life
2: gives you. Yeah. Right? Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I think it comes from life lessons. You know, really pretty much what Charlie's saying. You know, you, you learn from someone else. You know, and you take what they're giving you, and you turn that into your own. I listen to so many different people, and I steal.
0: Yep. those that, we, that's part of it too we all know that we trade things we kick the soccer ball around one of the people who i listen to very closely is a gentleman named adam burt we had him on our show he used to play nhl hockey for 14 years he's now the pastor at every nation's new jersey church and when he speaks he adam steals stuff too okay because I'll, I'll go to him i say hey adam i stole this from you and so he goes, as a For
2: a pastor, he's a
0: thief, is what you're saying.
2: He's a thief. He's a
0: C.S. Lewis thief. (laughs) But I am a thief of Pastor Adam Burt. I do want to give a shout out to Pastor Adam because he's been a great influence in my life. He's really helped me solidify some of my thought-provoking comments. And I'll listen to the guy every day. But like you, I try my best to sit and listen and absorb what people are saying because I think everybody has a valuable voice. You, Charlie, now you, you're somebody who lived this, this whole life and you've become this, I don't want to say different person. I think it's more an awakening of yourself. The Did real you, Charlie, maybe? Yeah. I think the you're more there. the real Charlie now than say you were when you were in Nebraska and I didn't even know you then. Right, right. And that's just from what you told me. Is that, yeah. you think that's fair to say?
1: Well, I think I'm out of the survival mode. I think for the first time in my life, I'm living, I'm breathing and I'm seeing life and color.
0: That's an interesting comment. You're seeing life in color. Do you yeah. think it was more black and white? Oh,
1: it was, you know what it was? It was a narrow vision that I had of everything. And when you're in survival mode, you don't take time to see that things are three dimensional, there's colors to stuff. Life is really just transactional. And I got away from that.
2: Do you think it's like releasing your suffering? Once oh, you release uh, your suffering, now you now you're living.
1: Let me tell you, I released a lot of suffering and uh <laughs> you know, I'm a definitely in a different spot than I was when I came on show number what was it, 46
0: 46 brackets. 40 I I actually have it written down 46. Yeah. I'm just going to point it out to you. You know, we're we're star makers now. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz you're you're a star now. Like you're you're like, you Google your name and you are everywhere. And guess what? I've I watch Thing, let me let you in on a little secret, everybody. Charlie and I and Mike, we're, we're really good friends. And I talked to Charlie. Charlie. Charlie sits on our board of directors. For yeah. Dented Development Project. Go to DentonDevelopmentProject.com. you find out more, and you'll find out more about Charlie. Uh, Charlie's been a voice of reason in there uh, during our board meetings. Absolutely. He comes up with these ideas. You're like, where
1: the hell did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> that's the Nebraska I man. <laughs> you know, you take a New York guy, and you stick him in the Midwest for 25 years, and you really got an interesting cat. Somebody with patience that can see.
0: Different mindset, too. And you, you've you become a, a sounding board for me in much the same way Mike is a sounding board for me, where I'll call him up and i say, hey, I got this idea. What do you think? And I'll call you up. Uh, you know, after you did a show, let's do an autopsy on that particular show. Mm-hmm. Uh, the information, how did it get out there? Did it get out there effectively? Did the message come across? Um, who's your sounding board?
1: My sounding board <clears> is, of course, Jen. My sounding board is... By the way, you outkicked your coverage on that I one, brother. know That's what I hear. I hear
2: that a lot. Yeah, she's... she's I said that. I, I posted that. Yeah. That, <laughs> that is... is. I, I commented on it. I said, you, you outkicked did. your coverage. Yes.
1: You know, yeah, she's, uh, she's quite a good looking girl, both inside and out, and... Uh, it's a, she's brilliant. She is brilliant. She's brilliant.
0: Uh, you know, it's that we... That's we, good and bad. <laughs> yeah. We surround ourselves with these people where
2: you're like, what the hell are you doing with me? So I try to surround myself with ugly people. Well, because you know, I, I, I hang out with Kevin. You so. didn't succeed. Yeah. <laughs> so, Charlie, let's
0: let's do a little recap. You were in here some time ago. I mean, this is going to be episode 83. Can you believe right. that? 83. Wow. So He was at the halfway point. You were at the just half, about. halfway point. Let's give a little background on yourself. If okay. you give a little five-minute synopsis so those of you who haven't seen you before on our show know a little bit more about you.
1: Okay. I'm a native New Yorker, born in New York City. Got a birth certificate that says that. Uh, Grew up in New York and then uh, went out to Long Island. And uh, it was a tough run for me. I didn't grow up in a very uh, loving home. and I'm not unique in that situation, but my father was pretty crazy. And uh, from the earliest age, eight years old, I was already in survival mode. I was getting kicked out of the house, getting kicked out at eight, getting kicked out at 12, getting kicked out at 13, and a scrapper basically, you know, scrapping for food and, you know, having to take care of myself at nighttime, you know, in uh, schoolyards. And uh, it was not a good childhood. And a good childhood turned into bad teenage years, and bad teenage years led me into the wrong direction. You know, instead of following my dreams, I took the police officer exam back when I was 17 years old. So I can get on the force, and I did real well with it. I started the uh, process of getting hired, and I got away from that. Then I uh, tried to join the U.S. Army, and I had uh, a medical issue, not a big deal, but it was enough for them to you know, tell me I had to go to my primary care physician to get cleared on something. And then uh, I wound up in the streets of uh, East New York, Brooklyn, uh, some of the worst uh, areas of the country, where the infamous 7-5 documentary takes place, and I wound up hooked on drugs, man. And uh, it was bad, and I did that for a number of years, and I survived that. And, you know, I had an awakening, got off of the drugs, never to touch drugs again, and wound up in the Midwest, and I wound up working for the Department of Corrections. And you take a street guy that gets clean, that's honest, and you put him in the Department of Corrections, I excelled. Take
2: a New York City street guy and put him in the Nebraska Department of Corrections.
1: Well, I think here's what I want to say. I think the prison is prison no matter where it is. I mean, I think that prison is prison. I mean, there's the same kind of killers they got in New York as they got in the Midwest. But I will tell you this. For me, that structure made me feel like I was in college. And I needed that. So I worked in corrections for about 10 years, and I got away from that. I just wanted to have a business and i started the trash business from scratch and um i exceeded what i thought would happen i thought i'd have a little side hustle and i you know have a truck or two
0: very few people realize that most law enforcement yeah they always have a side hustle yeah there's always something going on there's electricians there's carpenters there's landscapers We always try to get a little bit extra money because I I think it's something... Drug dealers. Yeah, yeah, drug (laughs) dealers. The the famous Mike Dowd. But we're always trying to supplement our income. And law enforcement gets paid fairly well. Why do you think, if you were to do a deep dive into why officers do side hustles like that, because it it happens a
1: lot. Right. What do you think that might be? Because in the back of their mind, in the back of my mind, there was always anxiety working for the DOC and I wanted to have a parachute. And so what I was doing basically was saying, this don't make sense working a second job and building this business when I could just work time and a half or work double time. Right. But I know in the back of my mind, I can't do this forever. I've got to basically find a way out of here. So that's what I, that's what I did. You know, that kind of work, is very hard on the soul. And you know Oh, that book fell as we talked. Oh, that's
0: Miracles of Manhattan by yeah. a good friend wow. Pastor Ron Lewis. It's a uh, great book.
1: It's interesting. Um so that kind of work is very, very stressful in the soul. It's very hard. And you know, I found something to do and it wound up exceeding my expectations. I wound up building a real live business. Well, I've
0: seen it go the other way in, in law enforcement where like you said, they rely on overtime. They rely on road jobs. They rely on extra work within the system. And eventually that stuff dries up. And and they're living beyond their means. They're living beyond your means. Right. Exactly. You've seen it time and time again administration cuts overtime. Well, you relied on that overtime as part of your sure. income. Where you were, I know the smarter people had that side hustle for that reason. They're like, well, I'm not going to sit there and I'm not going to rely on that stuff. It's there. I'll take it if it's there. But my real stuff is going to be over here. And they also try to set themselves up for retirement.
1: You know, you learn a lot about the Department of Corrections or the police department. It's interesting. When I was very gung-ho and I wanted to move up with the Department of Corrections, I was like on a slow boat to China. But once I got preoccupied, involved in my business, all of a sudden, they were moving me up. It was like the opposite of what should have happened. But I really guessed that looking back is I'm an intense heat-seeking missile. And once my focus wasn't so much in moving up and it was on building a business, they kind of said, you know what? We'll give this guy a shot. And it was like actually inconvenient, you know?
0: Intense, <laughs> intense heat-seeking missile meet dirty bomb.
1: <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I yeah. am a dirty bomb. <laughs> but that's, that's, uh, that's an interesting life to go from corrections to the garbage business. Now, I know some offhanded comments because I've read them uh-huh. where it's, you went from taking care of trash to taking out the trash. Yes. I don't think that's necessarily true because I know you have a different compassionate outlook when it comes to corrections.
1: I do. I do. I really do. And I get, you know, every person that's locked up in America is somebody's father, brother, sister, and so on. And not everyone, I can't stress this enough. It's not a triple murderer. It's not a Charlie Manson. There are a lot of people that are locked up with long sentences that just did a series of stupid things and it compounded. And once you're a felon, it don't take much to keep you away. And once you're a felon, you're always a felon because that comes with you wherever just, you go now. It just goes with you and there's no, I think more importantly, that stamp of being a felon just crushes people's aspirations. Because
2: they consider, you know, I'm, I'm a felon now. I'm going to be a felon the rest of my yeah. life. Never going to be able to yeah. get a good job. Yeah. So they just continue yeah. with that that line of yeah. that how, line of work. I guess you could say. How many times
0: in our lives have the women in our lives blamed you for something that you didn't do, mm-hmm. and you said, "Well, screw it. If you're going to blame me for it, I'm going to do it." Right. And, th- I, and- I can't
2: confirm or deny. <laughs> right. So- Yet. <laughs> Yet. <laughs>
1: So, you know, and the other thing is, too, if you work corrections long enough, just like a veterinarian's not petrified of a pit bull or 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 other dogs, so they see dogs for being a dog. And if you work in that line of work, yes, you know there are bad people out there, and they are never to hit the streets again. But you know a lot of people that they're there because of their addiction. And it's not always drugs and alcohol. Gambling. Uh, you name it, people get addicted to it, and they wind up going down the drain. And once they get in that drain, it seems like it's almost impossible to break out of that.
0: You know it it's funny you mentioned addiction because I, I as you mentioned addiction, I stare down at at this wonderful tome that you wrote. And we are here to talk about the suffering of fourteen and second. So fourteenth and second is Charlie's book. came out what? about a month ago, about a month ago, about a month ago, about a month ago., uh, by the time this airs it'll be out for about two months. This book, I've said this. I've been plugging the hell out of this book on this thank show. Thank you, thank you. And it's not because you're my friend. I, I, I would I would have plugged it because you're my friend. Let me let me make that clear. When this first came out, I ordered it. I read it. As I read through it, I called you. I'm like, wow, Charlie, this this is something special. And I would have read it no matter what. Yeah. But there are points in this book, and I'm a, I, I got degrees in literature, so I'm familiar with reading books, and they're not pop up books, Mike.
2: His degree is in cartoon literature.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There are very few books in this world that are able to elicit emotion out of me like this book. And there are some points that we're going to get into, some key points that I want to talk about as far as those. they, They really pull at your heartstrings because you have the ability when you write this to make me feel like I was with you. You know when you're when 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 your you, your father's doing horrible things. I won't I won't I, won't, I don't want to ruin some. We're going to get into some of it, but your father's doing horrible things, and I'm that little boy. I just implant myself into you. Yeah, that, I don't know how you do it. You did an a unbelievable job. So yes, this book, Charlie's My Friend. I want you to get the book, but as somebody here to tell you, that's read thousands of books. This might be one of the best books I ever read.
1: That's pretty profound for you to say that. I appreciate that. And quite honestly, I'm a spiritual guy. It was like God had my hands. I wrote the book physically. You know, I physically wrote it with a pen.
0: Which I agree with because pen to paper, you get a connection. My
1: goodness. And I got to tell you something. I went in the basement of my home in 2018. And I spent four months in the basement until this thing was done. And then I spent the next three and a half or plus years slowly having it edited and going through it. Nine Ways to Sunday, to produce a finished product that the reader will say, you know what, I gave this person my time, and this was worth my time. Because I think 14th and 2nd, if it can't help you, you're going to know somebody that right next to you, or one handshake away, that this story can help. There are
0: points in this book where there are some really wicked things going on. Uh, Why write a book? about your life, what drove you to get this stuff out of you?
1: You know, that's a great question, Kevin. And I He wanna, comes
2: up with him once in a while.
1: He does. and I, No, he does more than once yeah. in a while. I really need people to hear me on this one. So think about my life. I was always anonymous. My father always told me never to say anything, no matter what happened in the house. I went all the ways to East New York, Brooklyn, to get high on drugs so nobody in Long Island would know. I go to work for the Department of Corrections and you're sworn to secrecy, man. You can't talk about what goes on behind those walls. You just can't. You cannot talk about it. Then I got in the trash business, another tough business that you got to keep your mouth shut. And I've always had to keep my mouth shut. And I've always been squared away. You know, I've been squared away with the great credit, not telling my story. So much so I was at a law enforcement deal with you guys and you guys thought I was squared away because I never told anybody what happened. But at one point, I said to myself, I don't owe this to me. I owe it to other people. There are so many people that are named in this book that have helped me. You know, you're going to read about seven incidences where a guardian angel came and he was wearing a uniform, okay? And I'm not a guy that throws bouquets at anybody, okay? I'm a guy that sees life, you know, for what it is. And I mean... um, I never thought of police as being spiritual, but for the reader, if they go into this book and they read the occurrences I had with police officers, at times that just were not even remotely planned and unplanned, it just happened. So I wrote the book and I decided to, I had some paralysis by analysis where I didn't want to let go for a while. And I finally just said, you know what, it's time to go. And I released it.
0: How did it feel when you put that pen to paper and got this stuff out?
1: It felt really, really good. And you know what, Kevin and Mike, I don't care no more. I don't care if you guys judge me because you know what, I judge myself long enough. And you know, the way life is, is this. Um, I haven't done a drug in like 31 years. I'm clean off of alcohol 24 plus years. I have maintained a normal life for many, many decades now. Quote, unquote, normal life. Yes, quote, unquote. I mean, as far as my neighbors would think. I mean, Mm -hmm. my Nebraska friends that are reading this book cannot believe the guy that was in charge of making sure all the pharmaceuticals were accounted for in the penitentiary hospital was my job.
0: Mike, (laughs) I don't know about you, but I'm I'm listening to Charlie talk about this stuff. I couldn't be more proud— because you remember when Charlie first came into the basement where the old studio was, oh yeah, yeah. and what Charlie looked like, Charlie, you were nervous. You were, I know you prepared. Yeah, All right. I know you over Charlie.
2: Charlie's over. He's, I was going to say he overprepares for everything because that's like the type of personality he has. And I'm watching this
0: progression from our our show that we did. Some, geez, that that was. It's got to be almost a year ago. It's pretty close to probably nine, ten months ago. This progression of this really, I don't want to say downtrodden, but you had like a sadness to you. Mm-hmm. And then I see you now when you're talking on camera. Yeah. And I see the look in your eye <laughs> and I see the glimmer in your yeah. eye.
1: thank you. Thank you.
2: It's like raising your child. Oh, you know, we raised Charlie right before our eyes. Yeah. It <laughs> is so...
0: It, our show, we that's what we want out of our show. Because this whole book is... Our show in a nutshell. The, the roadmap of yeah. the suffering podcast. It's you, you start at one place, you go down and then you come back up and there's many different levels in between.
1: I think, I think the general public doesn't realize addiction and how it affects society and how it affects their loved ones. I don't think people realize that. And I don't, I don't think that the general public understands addiction. That if you're a drug addict and we stop doing drugs and we don't, do any treatment for that because remember the drugs are only a symptom of the addiction there's a deeper underlying problem it will shift to alcohol and all of a sudden you'll be a drinker and then all of a sudden you'll close up on drinking and all of a sudden you want to have gummy bears with thc or whatever in it an addict has to arrest the addiction i always
0: consider addiction like an umbrella and underneath that umbrella falls all these different levels if if you're going you're always going to have that umbrella hanging over your head it's what you feel underneath it with it's what you're trying to mask some people do it with drugs some people do it with pornography like mike mm-hmm. so
2: <laughs> come on well, it, whatever it takes <laughs> so whatever it takes to fill that void but there are some good addictions there are some positive addictions Th- this book was almost like an addiction to you Then getting this book finishing this book and writing it like you said you it, it, you it, went full bore into
1: it it went full bore and can you imagine i can't imagine you know, I have an unbelievable memory and I also throughout my life have taken notes. I got I got boxes of stuff. I recorded my life in when I worked at the Department of Corrections. If there was things that went on during the course, I have all those records. And in creating this book for the reader, I made sure that it was as accurate as possible by doing newspapers.com to get the actual articles by doing deep Google searches to make sure when the reader read this, because there's a lot of information here that they're going to be like, "Wow!" I mean, one your of the-
0: recall is amazing, and this is a fifty-year book.
1: Yeah, it's it's actually longer. The book really takes place in 1968 when I get my German Shepherd. We go to Woodstock in 1969. And then we start the seventies,
0: and you you picked up that hitchhiker. We picked up the hitchhiker who the- smelled really bad now, Mike and i the, Mike and I have arrested people mm-hmm. who smelled less than pleasant. So when you describe that as a little kid with your dog sitting in the middle, yes, and, and this is what I'm talking about earlier, where you have a way of writing where you can have the reader visualize what
2: you're going through. You I almost could, feel like you're there.
1: I could smell yeah.
2: this hippie, yeah.
1: you know. Kevin, mental, and I saw this when I wore corrections, mental recall is probably the worst, okay? And the reading I've done, like The Art of Thinking Clearly, really says that. So in my life, there has been some major events that I remember, like there's no tomorrow. And some of the trauma has caused me to block out periods of time. And my trauma was a double trauma. I had a physical father who was just beat me like a man when I was little. And then I had a mother who played the mental games. Uh, And I don't think anything that I went through is unique, but the level of craziness might have a cornerstone.
0: So you've experienced both types of abuse as a child. So we're going to start when you're young. You you experienced both physical and mental slash emotional abuse. I've long said for myself, I'd rather be physically abused than mentally or emotionally abused because I feel I find that more painful. Yes. As somebody who's gone through both, what is your take on that?
1: My take on it is that with physical abuse, you do get an adrenaline dump, and you do get you you're able to toughen up against it, and you're able to withstand it more and more. And what hurt you yesterday might not hurt you a week from now. But with the mental, it's breaking you down in your core. Your, your resolve to, to exist is just being beaten down, and your spirit is killed. And when you kill a spirit, when you kill your spirit, there's nothing left to you. But when it comes to physical abuse, you know what? There's a party that says, you know what? Give it the best you can. I'll handle this. Well, there-
2: well you know, f- physical abuse, you have the scars and the wounds. Right. You know, mental abuse, you're, you're hiding all that. Yeah, It it really, it is, it should call, it should fall under like mental health issues. Absolutely. Because, you know, you're getting all this, you know, verbal abuse and, and, and all that. And you have no signs of show, you know, there's no way of showing that.
1: There's no way of showing that. So both of those things were going on and, uh, I wouldn't
2: want to live it again. And you were going through it all alone. I I was,
0: it would have been much easier, not better, but much easier if you had somebody who was going through it, like say, And I don't wish this on anybody if your mother was going through physical abuse alongside of you, Mm -hmm. because then you could have found something to bond with.
1: Right, right. Well, I got through it, and this is a book that almost didn't happen. This is a story that almost didn't happen. And the fact that I crossed paths with you guys. See, now, the book was started to be written in 18, and it was pretty much done by 19. But I didn't release it. See, this book was really a gift to me. And then when I started to do the podcast and started talking, and we'll get to the reason why. I mean, I would have lived my life in obscurity. Nobody would have ever known my name if it wasn't for a couple of things we're going to talk about.
0: How many times did you go to release this book and pull it back?
1: I I did a number of times. Or I would do, I would just have another editor go through it and re-edit or look. And I played games. I just did not want to release it. I was um, say you were
2: having those other editors just so that you had more time and you could say no.
1: Here's what happens, and here's the growth I have now. You know, when you've been abused, you seem to have an allegiance with your abusers, okay? And you can't believe this is going on, but you, you kind of want – you feel bad for them. And you're like, you know what? If I put this book out, it will expose a lot of people. But, you know, I started to look over my life, and I said, my brother moved out when he was 16, and he changed his last name legally. And he never looked back, and he moved eight states away. And at some point, I had to be true to myself and say, you know what? This is about me. Whatever time I got left on this planet, I'm going to at least have a homecoming for me.
2: Wow. Because you, you lost a childhood.
1: I lost a child, but I got one back and we'll talk about that yeah, yeah. You,
2: you know what though people who've gone through abuse and maybe this was part of it too they call it resisting success because you were never used to having success you were never used like you said you you lived in anonymity mm-hmm. you know and maybe you not wanting to release the book was you were resisting success you didn't want to you know you're you're still reverting back to your your childhood trauma very well could be very well, could be. Where'd you get that resistance of success?
0: You didn't just make that up.
2: What was the uh, the social media question?
0: Uh, it's uh, where do you get your thought provoking comments from?
2: You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Where'd you get that? The, the bathroom wall? Yeah, right, at, right under right under my name and phone number. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, Charlie, there, there's you go deep into the addiction portion in this book, and it gets bad. It gets really bad, but there's one point in particular that I want to bring out, because like I told you earlier, this book made me tear up. At one particular point, you were just in the throes of addiction, and you you were downtrodden, you were homeless, and you're on this train, and a stranger says, sees you and sees that you're not doing well. Yes. do you, Tell us a little bit about that story.
1: I was on a Jamaica... Train platform, waiting for a train. And this peaceful-looking fellow looked at me, and I looked at him, and he came over to me. And in moments, which seemed like forever, but it was only a couple minutes, he gave me the rundown of his life. He had told me that he had been addicted to drugs and that he had lived in the Bronx in a refrigerator box. And I asked him, why is he telling me this? He says, you don't look well
0: but you weren't like uh the the tip- stereotypical homeless person you you cuz i've seen pictures of you from back right, then right you know you're a big dude yeah uh, you were you were in shape
2: and pretty much well kept for that
1: right i was but the thing is kevin that's part of addiction you know i was running around i mean for the listeners i mean remember joe klecko sure I mean, I, I mean, I had a 20-inch yeah. neck, I had, I had neck, and I had, you know, the arms and, and, and chest that went along with it because I, I had lifted a lot of weights because prior to hitting the drugs, I mean, I was working in the nightclubs, and I spent a lot of time with the rage I had lifting weights and doing all that. But it still didn't matter. My eyes told the story to this guy, Michael, and he would tell me where there would be help. There would be a monastery along the Hudson called Graymore.
0: Is that still in existence? It's still in
1: existence. Yeah. And um, it was the beginning for me to realize I was done. And I would be seeking a spiritual intervention to stop this craziness.
0: And you had been to detoxes countless, before, countless. rehabs. You had been there. Too many to count. No kidding. And what was so different about this Graymore?
1: Well, the thing was, they came at me um, with the routine 12 steps, 12 traditions, which which works for people. But I was so damaged, so much trauma, that a rehab didn't have enough time to put in all the help I needed. Remember, rehab's got a lot of people. And I would send them on a a, a, a seesaw back and forth because I was not ready to face myself. But the monastery would help me do this by not having to look at myself by myself. They'd be able to tell me, look, there's a higher power, you got... I believe in God. You're not doing this alone. And the monastery is what I needed in order to separate me from the drugs and have the clarity to say, what am I doing with my life? And once I got clean off the drugs, it became apparent to me there was something that different that changed.
0: Stepping back just a hair, there was the point when you had called your father, who you had a contentious relationship with. Yes. You call your father to take you up to this monastery. Yes. And you're hungry and you're homeless. I am. And all you want is some chicken.
1: That's all I want. I want a meal.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the most amazing, amazing parts of this book to me. To me, it's really one of the climaxes of this book. Yeah. Is you go up to this this stand to get some chicken and you don't have any money. You order it, but you don't have any
1: money. I, I just got 55 cents about, yeah.
0: And the guy grabs you. Yes. And starts assaulting you.
1: He, de- he does. And just to back up for a second, Kevin, basically what happened was I thought by ordering the chicken... See if and you would have
0: got the chicken from the Grand Saloon,
1: then that would have been different.
0: Nine forty Van Houten Avenue, Grand yeah. Saloon. Grand Saloon's got some good chicken,
1: and, and, and I wouldn't have been fighting like I was here. But the, <laughs> I, I wound up ordering the chicken, and then I put the fifty-five cents on the counter and told him I didn't have the money, and the guy got incensed, and is incensed, and I didn't react, do nothing, and he put his hands on me.
0: After the fight's over and you were found not culpable of starting the You're fight, fine, right? Uh, this is the incident where a man in blue, yes, a sergeant, comes up to you, sees that you're hurting. He does. And what's he do?
1: He says, what's your story? And I told my story in just a few moments. I told him my father was coming to pick me up. I was going to go up to a monastery, and I was going to get clean from drugs. And I could tell he knew that uh, I was hurting, and he told me to go outside. And a moments later, he came out with the chicken dinner, and he paid for it for me. And it was just that act of kindness. I mean, you would have thought I hit the lottery. I would have smiled as big as can be. But it was the turning point in my life where I saw that I stopped fighting. I stopped. I stopped fighting.
0: Just that little random act of kindness. Yeah. It was huge. Made a huge difference. And I'm reading this, and tears are coming down. This is is amazing. You know who that gentleman was? The sergeant? Yes.
1: I do not know him personally.
0: You don't know he him knows. personally. I would love to find that oh, guy just goodness. to shake his hand to say, you made a difference, because as police officers, that's all we want to do.
1: That's all you want.
2: But right. now, you you had a chance to pay that forward, too.
1: I have had a chance to pay it forward. and When, um,
2: when you took the trip to New York City to go meet the lawyer. Yes. And you ran into the, the, the homeless ju- guy The there. journalist.
1: The journalist. The journalist from uh, New York uh, that was out there with the death row inmate. Yep. Yes. Yep.
0: Yes, but the you you throughout your whole life, and this monastery takes you in. It right? takes me in, and you were resistant to it in the beginning. But I watched up until this point your family and you taking in dogs and really having a a bond with these with these different animals, mm-hmm. and that's what the monastery did for you. Because I know you're doing that now. We'll get into that in just a little yeah. bit. But that's what the monastery. That's how I saw it. The monastery. Brought you in and showed you the humanity and the friendship and the love that these animals had for you growing up and, they, and in your throes of addiction. They
1: did. And you know, it was the first time in my life lo- it was my first time in my life that I really felt the word love effectively. And here's how it was. I remember after about two weeks in a monastery eating regular meals, I felt my old self again. I just thought I had a bad this is addiction. I thought I had a bad string of luck. So I told the monastery that I was ready to go back home. And I'm cured. Listened. And they said to me, you have no home. You're homeless. We're, pro- we're providing a home for you because we care for you. And I started to cry. I realized at that point, I was done. I was really done. And you know, here's the good news. I never had to pick up drugs again. I never had to go down it again. And, um, but there's more healing that goes on after drugs. Drugs were just a part of the problem.
2: But is that the first time you ever felt actual love?
1: That was definitely, that was the first time that I ever felt like I was cared for, like my life had some value.
0: You move on out of the monastery, and I know there's several different steps, which you get into very clearly in this book. Yeah. Between there and time to, I know you followed a a girl, they sometimes lead you in a direction. Sure. Follow You follow this woman out to Nebraska, but even that you were resistant to. I was resistant to that. You didn't want to leave your home to go to
1: something? You know was that what? I'm going to say this to you guys. I really do like New York. You know what? New York people are just knock around people. And when you're from New York, there's like some type of, even if you're well, you're still a little nuts because like New Yorkers think they're all famous or they think something's big from being from New York. And I was very proud to be from New York and I just didn't want to leave it, but I did leave it.
2: Is it, is it maybe you're afraid of change?
1: It could be that, but it's also like, you know, I wanted to have my day in the sun where I'm from and moving to Nebraska. Although, you know, a lot of people don't know much about the Midwest. Nebraska's not the South. It's not the West Coast. It's just really like neutral. It's a neutral place to live, and it's pretty mod. It was actually a lot more modern than Long Island was, because it's a new place compared to New York.
0: The infrastructure is probably the infrastructure is way better. better. But you you weren't done with suffering. No, I had more suffering to do. (laughs) You you had a little bit more, but they were tests. Yeah. You you yeah, you're clean, and you move out to the Midwest, and everything seems great. You're married. Yeah. And you 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 seem to have this life that's being it's coming together. All that stuff that you wished for, but you're not done yet. No, I'm not done yet now now you start having problems at home yes and it leads you back one little trip up into addiction
1: it does and this is the crazy part i just felt that is that you know here here's a guy that went through all this trauma and now i'm working at the department of corrections and instead of like working in work release or working for you know the youth facility I'm working at the penitentiary. But then I'm not even just working at the regular general population. I'm stuck with death row, segregation units, the crazy shit, okay? So at some point, I decide that I'm safe from everything. And I'm going to have a drink.
0: Because I got this beat.
1: Yeah. I felt as though, you know, what could I... I mean, I got a job. And how I don't really like alcohol that much. So how can this thing go bad? Well, the thing I realized quickly is your brain does not know what it's being anesthetized by... So it doesn't think, okay, this is a different substance. It'll react different. No, it was like I never stopped. The craziness came back. So the drinking was short-lived, but it really had brought me to my knees and made me convinced. On April 5th of 1998, I came home from the penitentiary after working a 2 to 10 shift, stopped at the liquor store, and just guzzled down 40 ounces of beer, and that would be the last drink. And I'm in permanent sobriety one day at a time from that period forward. I just celebrated 24 plus
0: years. Do you live the the rest of your life that one day at a time? Because I do something very similar to that where you tell yourself, if if you were to tell yourself, I'm never having a drink ever again, I'm never doing a drug right. ever again. That's pretty overwhelming to think about.
1: It is. but You, you may know, be fooling you know yourself. What, you know what? You are exactly right, Kevin. But here's what the nice thing about it is. A drink or a drug is never farther than my arm can reach. But here's the good part. I like being crystal clear so much more than I like being inebriated, okay? I'm hooked on consciousness now. I want to deep breathe. I want to go swimming when it's cold out. I want to do everything I can to get the most out of this life because I lost so much time.
0: Well, you concentrate more on your body. Your body has become your new addiction.
1: It has become my new addiction and being conscious. I mean, you could, you know... Look, there's no secret. I, I mean, I eat once a day. I don't want anything in my way because even with food I found, if I take in a bunch of food, I'm like punch drunk. I get that insulin high and then I'm low and man, I'm just not doing that. I just eat once a day and I'm done.
0: That's why we're, we're big proponents of one of our sponsors, X-Body. If you go to Xbody US and go to their facility in Wayne, they're all about making this whole so this can be whole. It's exactly right. Right? Through testosterone therapy, through IV drips, through... They do cosmetic stuff there. You know, this is the world we live in. Gut checks. Gut checks.
1: You know, Kevin, an unhealthy body cannot house <clears throat> a healthy mind. And I know a lot of people don't think that. Really, when you're crystallizing your life, your life is three parts, okay? There's the spiritual, mental, and physical part, which every 12-step program and any spiritual program has in any religion. But you don't get it back spiritual first. You get back your physical condition. That's the first thing. You work on your body. Then your mind clears up. Once your mind clears up, you have the ability to pray and meditate.
2: Body, mind, and soul. There you go. And you can't do any praying
1: and meditating if you've got unhealthy back gut bacteria.
0: You go through. You get yourself sober. Yes. You're in the department of corrections. You start this trash business as your side hustle, and yeah. it turns out to be this life-changing thing because you're ultra-successful. Yes. But you're, you're an addict <laughs> right, And no matter what it is, you're going to, addicts put the full force of everything they are behind whatever they're doing, whatever their focus is. In like yeah. New York, it wasn't
2: too far behind them at this point either.
0: True, true. And you're that heat-seeking missile, like yes. you, you say. And you become this heat-seeking missile towards a garbage business and it's ultra successful enough enough so that where you're able to leave the Department of Corrections. I did. And was that more for a, a soul healing than this business opportunity with the garbage business?
1: You know what happened? It was really simple. I was going back and forth because, you know, the de- I had moved up quite a bit. I mean, I only had the Department of Corrections, the penitentiary, had 500 uh, staff. And I answered to the associate warden who answered to the warden. And basically, I was like the Fauci of corrections. You know, no, no way nobody tells Fauci anything to do. That's the way I was. So it was very hard for me to leave. But what happened was when 9-11 happened on that Tuesday, I looked and thought about every one of those souls that was lost, had no idea they're going to lose their life. And at that point forward, I said to myself, I am never living in limbo. And I was living in limbo. Do I stay with corrections? Do I keep on working the business? And I decided that day that I was done. Now, I put my two-week notice in, and I don't even know if it was a two-week notice. I put my resignation notice in on a Wednesday, And they did everything they could to try to talk me out of it. You know, the economy might be changed by this. This job is always going to be here. And I said to myself, I didn't live in fear. I said, no. I said this was part of my life. I have to close this door. And I had a, I had a really, I had an interesting, you know, deal on corrections. I mean, Kevin, I mean, just one thing I did in, on on a death row inmate. It's got three point five million listens on on the internet. I'll
0: throw a shout out to Trendifier on that one for Julian Julian Dory. Yeah, that short. That's a great short because he does it in such a way where you feel you have this ability when you're speaking about things like this to show the humanity. Yeah. You're not that robot behind that glass this guy's about to die, and you just give him a little bit of... You
1: know, and unless you've been in that situation, I know people want, they want a bloodthirsty for the criminals. I, I agree, man. If somebody hurt my family or anybody, I mean, I have the same empathy. Uh, You know, listen, with well, my family, if I hear something happens, but at the end of the day, when you schedule an execution at the exact moment, you know this darkness is coming to the prison at a certain time. And you never think you're going to sign up for a job that has you get your hands that involved in something. So i'm glad that's behind me uh it definitely uh it definitely uh is not something that i look back at with any uh happiness like you said even
2: those death row inmates they're people too you know and they have family
1: they do and you feel for the family and the victims never feel better after we execute them
2: that's the big there's thing. no closure there's to no it. closure no yeah
1: there's no closure and you know i gotta tell you um i learned a lot from those guys as we talked in episode i learned a lot from those guys because i spent a lot of time with them with their visits and uh
0: it's a lesson in psychology.
1: It's a lesson in psychology. And you know what I learned about murderers? That can happen to anybody. The people today that are walking around today can do that tomorrow. Um, you just never know when somebody's going to flip the lid and do something like that. So um, We're always one step away. Always one step away. So, um, How much did that
0: shut down your emotional capacity dealing day in and day out? You're in recovery. Yes. You're in recovery and your emotions where you went from anesthetizing your emotions with drugs and alcohol, and you got to guard yourself against that.
1: Look, it's surreal. I mean, you don't hear about this often. You hear wardens talking. You never hear the staff members talk because they always got a a lid on them. When you know someone is going to die at a certain time, at a scheduled death, and they know the process because they've been told what's going to happen to them, and you're doing their last visit, you feel like you're dying. You literally feel like you got a date with that electric chair. You got a date with that gurney. And now that's the lethal injection. But when I was doing the work, it was the electric chair. It is heavy. And I tell you this, the people I know that were part of the death squad, they all had health problems. They all drank. It's just not a normal line of work to do scheduled death. Now, as a police officer... Look, you're going to do, or even a citizen, if you see a crime in progress, you're not even going to care about your own safety. You're going to jump in front of a bullet. You're going to jump into a burning home to save somebody's life. But that's not the way the death penalty is held out. It's long process to finally get there, and drama's really built up. It's
2: the slowest, quick death in yes. the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, how many, how
2: many people are on death row for like years? Yeah, in appeals. I think the appeals. minimum is ten
0: years. A, it's, a
1: and, it's and you know, for the people that don't know, you know, it it, it costs more to, to to do the death penalty. We found that there are people that are innocent. I was there when a guy got off the death penalty. Yeah, for those that like the ghoulish, uh Jeremy Sheets got off of uh, the death penalty, and it was a part of my life that I wish I never had to experience. I mean, could you imagine
2: that guy? He's sentenced to death. <laughs> getting off. And then he winds up, you know, and then they find out that he he's not the one who did it.
1: You know, he may, may or may not. It happens all the time. right? Oh, yeah. But the thing is this. I just wish I would have had a regular life sometimes. But I, then I wouldn't have wrote 14th and 2nd, and the reader is going to hear a bunch of uh, bunch of stories that make them, at the end of the day, reflect on their life. And if they got some struggling points or they got some things, I think it's going to be a motivator for more them. more importantly, you wouldn't have met us. No, I wouldn't. Have if you guys were just Charlie from the street, no. you would
2: have never met us. And no. uh... there's the serendipity <laughs> that we always we do talk about often on here. But
0: you are also known. You are the father of somebody very famous. Yes, you are the father of Star, the New York Pitbull. Yes, uh, who uh, who was shot at Fourteenth and Second. Fourteenth and Second, which is oddly enough where you used to get your drugs.
1: I used to get drugs at Fourteenth and Second. Also,
0: how's so, that? So the universe brought you back to Fourteenth to Fourteenth and Second in some form or fashion. To take this guy who is, who used to be anesthetized with drugs and alcohol, who was now anesthetized through life experience, who was kind of shut down black-white. And the cool thing about this book is you're, you're following two different paths and you're reading these two different paths from, from Star's journey to, you know, we all know from the last episode, Star was shot in the eye, but survived. And, you could just, you're waiting for them to collide. Right. These two separate worlds to collide. And what I think is that is your birth. That's how I see
1: it. It really, it really was. And August 13th of 2012, to bring you there, I was at my desk. Kevin, I was so far from the guy I am today. I had blocked out my past. All I thought about was making money.
0: This episode's going to air right around the 10 year anniversary of the shooting of star the new york Pit wow Ball. isn't that like wow. once again the universe opens up and shows us what's possible
1: it shows us what happened so i mean i was going to i'm in nebraska at my desk and um i'm going to open up the internet and i'm going to read the new york papers because i never stopped reading what was going on in new that's york that's what i
2: was saying before new york never left them that's what never i was saying never left
1: me at. and 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 i was going to read a story on the internet that a dog was shot and killed And a homeless man went into a seizure that had a drug problem.
0: Lex Stankowitz. Lex
1: Stankowitz. Yeah. And my life would be changed forever because I didn't realize it at the time. I was reading the story of my life. And this dog had to live. And although the headline said the dog died and everybody said the dog died, I believe the dog lived all the ways from Nebraska. And this happened all the ways in the East Village in New York City.
2: And the story of how you tracked this dog down is- Uh, That's what I was going to say too. Is that where like maybe your addiction
1: kicked in again? You, be, look, you
2: almost became addicted with rescuing Star of the Dark.
1: Look, here's the deal. I've always thought like a cop because I had to survive on the streets. Mm-hmm. So I'm always watching. I'm always looking. I mean, I was a professional guy. In I, my, if you're an addict, you don't want to be arrested. You want to go forward. So I used every bit of street smarts I had, everything I learned in the Department of Corrections. And let's face it, guys that are in this line of work either have cops as friends or guys that are former inmates as friends. I mean, they just go hand in... Even though you don't understand how it happens, you have the reformed felons that are your friends, and you have people that work in the police. I mean, that's just what happens. And you think smartly, and you think streetwise. These worlds collide, and
0: I just see your life change. Because while you have looked after all these dogs and found companionship, this, this dog was essentially, again... This is my extrapolation of what I see out of there. This dog is the manifestation of Charlie Cifarelli. Yes. It came back. And came back. And came back Guys, happy. do you
1: realize how big of a deal? I mean, the police were even saying a day later, the dog is dead. And even if it did live-
0: I've w- it, unfortunately it, watched the video. Even if the dog
1: did live, it wouldn't- The dog, The dog came back and lived this incredible life. And basically, I got a childhood. So I got to tell you, right after that dog came back to life and I wound up adopting her many, many months later after a legal tug of war and red tape and everything that went on to get this dog. Because the dog lawyered up when she was initially shot. I don't know how a dog lawyers up. Then the dog was put in a witness protection program with a new name and stuck down in Philadelphia. And all this crazy, crazy stuff happened. But you know what? I was attached to this dog. And I was going to rescue this dog, give it a home, have a significant other that would back me 200%.
0: Oh, by the way, she's the she's the heroine of the story.
1: Oh, without a doubt, Jen.
0: Because all the bullshit that you put her oh. through, you'll find out in here, it's like, Charlie, come to bed, stop looking for this dog. Yeah. Charlie, another dog, come on, Listen, Charlie.
1: I got to say this. You know, there's Lassie and there's Rin Tin Tin, but Star, the New York Pitbull, is the story of 2022. Because when you think about it, now the way life is, why wouldn't the hero of the story be a one-eyed pit bull that's missing part of its skull? I mean, it all makes sense now how all this came together. But the dog, because of her demeanor, no one ever asked me what kind of dog that is. I mean, when I did wonderful things with her and took her to Alzheimer's, she's been to college classes with me to teach journalism. Uh, I would suggest anybody listening to this, just Google star the dog on Wikipedia, Um, not only is there a documentary made about her, The Luckiest Dog That Ever Lived Came Back to Life. Not only did a music producer make a song about her, Star's Journey. Uh, children's book has been written for her by Jen. Cartoon book. Which has
0: something like 70 million listens. 70,
1: she's got like 70 million listens on this song that has gone global. Right. Yeah.
0: So well, unbelievable. The documentary, I, I got to be honest with you. Let's, let's focus on this book because yeah. this book is going places. When you read this book, I see everything in my head. And that's the mark of a good book. It's a page turner. Right. You, know, you, you gotta, I've, I've started reading books and haven't stopped. I've done that a few times where because it just doesn't grab me. The way this book grabs you, there is no way in the world, if, if Hollywood doesn't come knocking for this book, they're out of their mind. If I had enough funding, I would make this book. I would make this movie.
1: I think the book, Kevin, what you're talking about, is I think that every person wants the underdog to win. And I think we all have a little underdog on us.
0: That's why we want you. You were the underdog, Charlie.
1: I Yeah. I think we all, I mean, let's just think about this for a second.
0: Oh, Cinderella, man. Isn't,
1: That's th- all you think want to do? Or think about this. Everybody, went, I'm not even a horse race guy, but who didn't jump up and down when Rich Strike won the Kentucky Derby? A horse with no chance, 70 to 1, 72 to 1 a horse that didn't have much value. We all want the underdog to win. And also, I think that when a reader reads this, I don't care how successful you are in this life. I don't care if you came over in a Mayflower. There's been parts of your life that have been unfair. And this book talks about that. There are some really successful people that I've met because of the dog, because of these podcasts.
2: So you met governors and everything I've met governor,
1: the... president, uh, federal uh, federal judges, Supreme Court judge you name it. I've met them. but more importantly, I've gotten people to have confidence in me and say stuff to me that they 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 too were not treated fairly. And when you know that and we come together, you're like, wow, we've been suffering in silence.
2: Has anybody in this life been treated fairly their whole lives? You know, it, it's all it's not, how you. It's all how you. You when you re- absorb that and
0: repurpose it. When our audience reads this book, they're going to realize that maybe they. You know, as bad as you had it, you might not have had it that bad. Charlie's had it pretty rough.
1: You know, it's it's funny you should say this because uh, a buddy of mine, well, again, a, a cop, and another cop read it. So we were on like a three way, and my buddy, that's the cop, says to me. Yeah, Charlie, we all had a tough time in our 60s and 70s. It's lucky we lived. And then the other cops said to him, "Uh-uh, you haven't read the book yet." <laughs> <laughs> Meaning that, yeah, this is this is, you know, guys like me generally don't bounce back, generally. And and if they do, they are limited because remember, I know a lot of addicts. There was a lot of stuff that happened to me that would have stopped me from progressing and having success now i had success in business and there's been plenty of addicts that could say well you know i was an addict in the streets still an addict but then i turned around and got into business but i had the awakening and i called the jimmy stewart awakening and it's wonderful life right to realize that my happiness is not somebody else's happiness see comparison is the thief of joy comparison is the thief of joy so the problem I started noticing when I made money was, I remember me and Jen, I wanted to buy one of those Mercedes AMGs when I made some money. And when I got to the car dealership, the guy said, well, why wouldn't you want a Bentley? It never ended. And it never ended. So that pursuit of happiness is really an uncomfortable one. And I see it's chased all over the place. Because people are looking for love in all the wrong places. They're looking for love in all the wrong places. They're looking for Love in a big wallet. And, yeah. You know,
2: I mean, it is, is, does. Listen, I'm sure money can make you happy, but it's, it's, it's personal happiness. Well, it's I, internal happiness that's going to really make you happy.
1: But here's what I've noticed, and I've done this. I've hired many homeless people over the course of my life. And when they get on their feet, they're very grateful. But human nature, after a few weeks of not being homeless anymore, eating regular, being part of my business, they'd be complaining about something.
0: It's nice to see somebody who has faith in humanity. I have to. It, it really it really is. Now, your brother has your brother read this book yet? He knows about the book as it was being built, as it was being made. He he's gotten different parts of it. Yes. And what somebody who was so intimately involved in that. I know your brother's somewhat younger than you.
1: Yes, 9 years
0: younger than me. But what what were his thoughts? Was he afraid that you were going to put this out and destroy the family legacy? Oh
1: no, no, absolutely not. Matter of fact, he always saw me as someone that protected the family reputation, where he basically just bought a company and said no. Well,
2: you said he changed his last name, he right? He
1: changed his last name. Now, the other thing that happened, which was really interesting, you never know who's watching you. So the book is on Amazon, and it gets bought. And I look at the, re- the reviews. Well, my older cousin, who was very close to my father, she know, knew him when she was growing up because... You know, she's 71, and that would have been closer to my father's age. But he's probably, you know, if he were alive today, died in 18, he'd be 89. So I didn't know how she'd respond. So instead of calling me, she made a review. And it felt good. She said, I read the book, and everything in it has, you know, it is what it is. It's true. It's just unfortunate. It was an unfortunate situation.
0: How do we get this book?
1: Uh, simple. 14th and 2nd on Amazon. And, um, you know, if somebody wants one signed, and I would never say this, but people do ask that. I mean, they do ask that. They want it personalized. You know, and what better gift to give somebody that's struggling if you have a family member somebody? Give them the gift of hope. Give them the gift of hope. So if they – the show notes will have it and we'll of get course. a book out to them. Um, I think it's uh, – I don't think – I think it's a great place for people to start wanna, that want to tackle some problems in their life and open their mind to the fact that they're not alone and there is a solution.
0: And, you know, the, this book's got legs, Charlie. This book has legs. I'm telling you now, this this book is going to go somewhere. How can our audience reach out to you?
1: Well, I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn, Charlie Cifarelli, show notes for that. Sure. Um, I do respond to messages, you know? Yes, you do. I do respond to messages. <laughs> Every
2: time I comment on Charlie's. he's always responding yeah, back to I me. I think
1: we owe that to people that take time for us.
2: And, um, so that you've had several posts up there where you
0: posted something up and I, I like it on Instagram and you'll call me up and say, Hey, you know, that post you, you just liked, Yeah, I, I'm not kidding you. This yeah. has happened. Yeah, yeah, You know, that post you just like, well, let me tell you the backstory behind yeah. it. And it's cool. Cause I have my own little personal podcast with Charlie getting the, all the cool backstories yeah. to everything.
1: You know, you know, what's really nice. It here's the gift that I got. So I went off to college prison. Then I was in my trash business, and I always wanted to come back to the East Coast to be here with you guys tonight, New Jersey guys in New Jersey. And I got to tell you something: this New York guy was never open to New Jersey. New Jersey may have it on New York. I'm going to tell you why.
0: <laughs> I don't. I might. I might argue that point, but go I, ahead. I'm going to tell
1: you why. I think the New Jersey people are a little bit more sane, man. I mean, I think there's more saneness out here than there is in, in <laughs> at least the Long Island part that I grew up in. It was five boroughs. I See, did,
2: New, New Jersey, we can get a get. Away from the insanity. Yes. Yeah, the insanity is only right across the river. You okay. know, we we want we want a little sanity. We can stay here. We want this yeah. I I'm looking at Charlie
0: Cifarelli right now, and I'm looking at the man who walked in our studio nine, ten months ago like this. You were sitting there like this. Look at you now. Yeah. I can see it in your eyes. The same way that guy did on the train. Yes. Probably saw that in your eyes. I see the life in your eyes. I'm so proud of you, Charlie. I'm going to always be your biggest fan and your biggest cheerleader when it comes to this stuff.
2: You know, as Kevin knows, I'm a big quote guy, and I saw a quote this week, and I, I really thought about you when I saw it. It said, we have two lives, and the second one begins when we realize we only have one.
1: Boy, that's powerful.
2: I mean, I thought about you right away when I saw that, yeah, cause, you're pulling you know, these things out of your ass today. Mike, that is powerful. Back, go back to the uh, social
1: media question I Economy. Mean, come on. Where do I <laughs> get these things from? Mike, that's powerful. And you know, here's the thing with, with, with a podcast. We're reaching a lot of people. And you know what? There's somebody that's going to listen to this, that's going to identify. And I think that we could save a life, because...
0: Yeah, the Suffering Podcast is reaching tens of tens of people. <laughs> well, it's
2: reaching Fam- a lot of Family
0: members. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie... We're coming to the end of this thing here, and as you did on your first episode, I'm going to ask this question and pose this question to you. You've written this wonderful book, 14th and Mm 2nd, and you've gone through this whole entire life, which is hard to believe that it's true, but I know that it is because I've heard the provenance in it. Mm. What do you think it's taught you?
1: It's taught me that suffering is not the end all, that there is a life after suffering. But what we don't know is when we're suffering, we think that it's never going to come to an end. And we don't realize that when we get outside of that tunnel, we get back into the light. We're not alone, man. You guys talk about this. There are so many people that are suffering alongside us, but they're doing what I did. They're not talking. They're not opening their mouth. I think that the future of suffering will be different. I think people won't have the muzzle where they don't say anything. I think the future people are going to get a lot more open with this
2: that's we're repurposing the word suffering. Another quote I got this week too, which I thought about, which is perfect for this podcast. If you focus on the hurt, you'll continue to suffer. If you focus on a lesson, you'll continue to grow. Perfect. Charlie, thank you so much for
0: coming here again. And this, you're going to be one of our evergreen guests.
2: It's just, whenever you want to come in, listen, know. there's an open door policy for you. You know, I love it. you, 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 you know that
1: always, I mean, it was
2: a, just a chance meeting where we got to meet Charlie. And it was, one of the guy tell them all you're one of the greatest people I ever met.
1: I you know what, guys, I appreciate that. and I tell you, there's no coincidences. And the fact that this is happening has been it's been so good for me, and it's because it's been good for me. That means I'm gonna continue to pour my cup into others.
0: I don't believe in coincidences. and we spoke about that yeah. with Pastor Ron Lewis last week. So the book is Fourteenth and Second. You'll be able to find it on Amazon. Um, it's a wonderful book. It's a leave a review on Amazon. Reach out to The Suffering Podcast. Reach out to Charlie. And that's going to do it for this episode of The Suffering Podcast, The Suffering of 14th and 2nd. Thank you so much, Charlie, for coming in. Charlie, well, always a pleasure.
2: You know that. You're always you, welcome here. Thank you. We'll kick him out. We'll bring you in this. <laughs> time. You could be Kevin's co-host. <laughs> but let's think about all the stuff that we learned today. Before you get into the things you learned, it's something I learned today. You said you had a a degree in literature? Yes. I didn't know Marvel Comics gave out degrees in literature. (laughs) 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 Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much for your vote of confidence. (laughs) Well, let's
0: think about all the stuff that I've learned today. Number one, life is transactional. Anonymity can make you suffer. Comparison is the thief of joy. Abuse causes resistance to success. See? Random Random acts of kindness have a great impact. But most importantly, live every day like it's your last. Oh, beautiful. And that's going to do it for this episode of The Suffering Podcast, The Suffering of 14th and 2nd. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Follow Mike on Instagram at Mike underscore fillets. Follow me at Real Kevin Donaldson. And of course, follow The Suffering Podcast. And we will see you on the next episode of The Suffering Podcast.